From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. In the studio today, we have a guest from Syracuse University. Professor Tej Bhatia is a professor of linguistics and director of South Asian languages at Syracuse University. He's going to talk about some projects he's involved with that might help in the prediction of heart attack and stroke. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Amber. So tell me um, what you what what you do at Syracuse University. Well, I actually you know, the, I'm also the part of forensic sciences program. So you're I, also involved in forensics. That's right. Okay. You know, forensic. You know, so faculty fellow in forensic sciences and National Security Institute. So I teach I, I teach courses such as you know, the forensic linguistics. So basically, the idea behind that one is what, how language can be used as an evidence or as evidence to track criminals huh. and also to you know, sort of threat assessments, you know, the, you know, trauma. So these are some of the things we deal with that. Interesting. Now, uh, a linguist is not necessarily someone who has fluency in multiple languages. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that, okay, yeah so. that, that's the you know, myth about linguists. The, the moment we say we are, you know, I am in linguistics or I'm a linguist. In the next question you hear from someone, your listener, well, how many languages do you speak? Well, actually, that's not our expertise. We distinguish between bilinguals, multilinguals, and linguists. Linguists are the ones who look at the biological basis of human communication. So we build universal typologies, for example. We don't need to know languages. But based on conceptual framework or biological basis of human communication, we can build universal typology. So just to give you an example, if there are 6,000 languages in the world, brain will give you three or four you know, communicative or communication options. So that's how we look at it. Another one, for example, if you ask us to talk about the you know, sound system of the languages of the world, we will look at that, how the phonation processes work. Like and, biologically, you know, biologically in, your, in your body. And that's right. You know, the, and how you, with, you, know, you create multiple you know, the sort of you know, wind, you know, you know, pipes, wind, wind pipes. Vocal and cords, vocal tongue. Cords and all like, that. Oh. So we don't need to go around the world and you know, search for every possible sound in every possible language, but based, our, based on our conceptual framework or scientific framework, we can predict basically or we can account for you know, the inventory of natural sound in human languages. So it's more about the sound than the um, origins of words? Well, you know, that, that's also one part, you know, part of you know, the linguistics because you know, they're also beyond, you know, beside the you know, biological basis, also there are social psychological basis of human communication. So the culture and the history also plays a very important role in the evolution of human languages. So we look at that, you know, the, how the words come into history of words and what they tell us about society. Okay, mm. interesting. Well, um, what does linguistics have to do with healthcare? What connections do well, you see? Well, the healthcare, the connection is this one, you know, because you know the language, you know, the is you know the language is a window to the human mind, and healthcare is you know where like for example cases of trauma, normal communication, and some kind of impaired communication, or tra trauma type of communication or traumatic 
communication. Linguists can provide you a quite a bit of you know insights on the way the mind is working. So, for example, in the case of you know the well, you know the serial bombers, their writing can tell us what what is happening in their mind. You were mentioning you were you were involved in some of the research or looking at the Unabomber. That's Ted, right. Ted yeah. Kaczynski. Yeah. So, so you know, the, uh, yes, you know, the, I was commissioned by you know, the you know, uh, Alfred Foundation you know, to write write an article on this, and basically, you know, the, we talked about how the conceptual framework, you know, well, the linguist can tap unconscious and conscious knowledge based on, you know, the analysis of conscious knowledge or unconscious knowledge in the brain and how human beings use language, we can construct, uh, you know, we can get insights into that, what type of trauma the person is going through. And further, you know, we can use that evidence, you know, the to you know, identify in some cases, like in the case of you know, Unibomber, the key evidence came from language. There were two phrases he used, you know, Ted Kaczynski used, which really you know, left his linguistic fingerprints mm, on his writing. And based on that one, or FBI, you know, that, that provided clue to FBI about the identity of Unibomber. That was not the only evidence. Evidence was further supplemented by family, and family also vouched for these ling- that were well, linguistic, special or individual linguistic traits of Unibomber. But he was <coughs> communicating in a way that was unique to to him. Oh, yeah, unconsciously. Unconsciously. He did not want to leave any trace of his writing. He, he, you know, but you know, in his manifesto. Out of 40,000 or some word, there were only two places where you he ends up making Freudian, huh. Freudian slip and which gave away a, yes, his identity or his uniqueness of his writing. Yeah. Um, some of what you say makes me think of a, a psychologist or psychiatrist analyzing how a person is communicating. Um, have you looked at um, communications in healthcare between... Uh, patients and caregivers? I, caregivers, I have not looked at it, but I've looked at some of the in special populations such as schizophrenia. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, the, and other, you know, one of the projects, you know, we are in, engaged in at Syracuse University. It's not my individual project, but it's a group project in which we are trying to see whether based on linguistic traits we can predict the possibility of heart attack. The hypothesis is very clear that, well, look, if there is some kind of stress or trauma um, or some kind of some physical malfunction, uh, you know, the anatomical malfunction, or you know, the heart is impaired in some sense, it is going to take you know, the effect. It will be reflected in the linguistic treat of the patients. So some of those things, and uh, in other cases, again, uh, schizophrenia, for example, mm, language can provide us quite a bit of you know, evidence about what's going on in the mind of the person. So how the person is thinking, uh, what is his worldview? For example, how that person thinks about what's his notion of self or identity for this patient. 
or what happens, you know, the, how he perceives others, you know. The, so on a simple matter such as, you know, intelligibility, well, my, you know, the, uh, in my work with schizophrenic patients, it reveals that, you know, sometimes schizophrenic you know, patients, they think mostly not so-called normal people, they have no ability to understand them. So they cannot, they, you know, they cannot understand their speech. They have to have somebody else, some other intermediary, maybe you know, the, some power outside this world, godly power, or some kind of you know, the, very, the people with hyper-empathy. Mm, they can interpret their messages. Otherwise, human beings don't have that type of empathy to interpret their messages. You say empathy. Is it is it patience, or do I mean do people have the ability and they just don't have the patience, or their perception is you know, the patient perception is that uh, ordinary listeners, mm, a normal so-called normal people with normal brain, they don't have the ability. They don't have empathy towards you know, the schizophrenia, they don't understand what they go through. As a result, you know, that they cannot understand, they, they do not have empathy to understand what they are seeing. So it's a hopeless case, you cannot talk with them. So really, that's uh, if there's no way to communicate with someone who has schizophrenia in a way that, that they'll be able to understand, that makes it difficult to... It does make makes it difficult because sometimes, you know, the, again, schizophrenia is a very complex subject. You know, there are different types of schizophrenia. Some will say only the voices, external voices outside this world can understand them. The others will say, yes, within some voices within me can understand, I can understand. But in order to understand, others to understand, perhaps, you know, they, they can, you know, the... They, if they have empathy, if they in the sort of therapeutic sessions, you know, if you are talking with them, and if the person talking with them, you can establish, or the patient can establish some kind of identity, some kind of relationship, you know, the relations with the, uh, say, the interviewer, mm, or the, um, you know, the normal person. Perhaps they can open up. Many times I have seen, you know, the, you know, during my interviews with schizophrenic patients, you know, if they can become very social with you, they will invite you for tea and coffee and simply begin to think along the lines that my word and your word is the same. So, for example, they will throw 20 different names and, and will assume that we know, or I know, if I'm talking with them, I know those people and we have this shared link. So they establish their identity very different, differently, and then from there they begin to look at the world, begin to you know, tell about themselves very differently. So in other words, they found in, in cases when they can find an empath, empathic you know, the, a listener, they can begin to, their way of talking with them begins to change. Hmm. Interesting. Now, how does that uh, relate to, you were talking about predicting the possibility of a heart attack. Are heart you attack. saying that people who go on so, to have heart attacks change the way they communicate prior to that? or you know, Well, you know, because if you take the case of normal people, if you're, we don't have any heart problem or something, our you know, the speech will be so-called at least 
normal. But if there is some kind of you know, biological dysfunction, then your intonation pattern, maybe some of the structures begin to you know, the, begin to be impaired. So in some cases, blood flow. Language has to do with some blood flow to the brain. If the blood flow is you know, somewhat disrupted, naturally this is going to take toll on speech of that one. And the other aspect of this one is also well, in some cases, it is a sort of aggression. In some cases, you'll, you'll find you know, the aggression. So they begin to talk. You know, the, you know, the, they, they are the ones, you know, if a population which is likely to have some kind of you know, heart, heart attack. So their speech will be different in that sense, you know, that you know, they believe that... You know, you can find linguistic trait in their speech and the form of some aggression, huh. which is different from aggression you will come across in normal cases. So we are trying to look into that one, not only this, but in the case of depression also. So what, in what way the depression, speech of the depressed patient is different from its speech of normal person? Is it fragmented or not fragmented? How in sentiment, in intensity of sentiments is reflected in their speech. So those are some other things. Will. Wow. So can we talk about the work you're doing on accents? Yes. You know, the, actually, I'm looking at the very, you know, accent is a very complex phenomena which has multiple strands. You know, one of the strands is basically how, you know, the, uh, you know, one crop or the dominant crop who passes judgments about the speech rate of the you know, so, sort of listener with accent as what type of effects it can have mm, on emotional or mental health effects on the listener. So, so for example, somebody is, you know, the, well, you know the, if you are talking with a foreigner and somebody or somebody within your own crop, say, for example, you know, from... You're talking with, you are from Midwest and you're talking with a person from, you know, the, from South uh, and you say, okay, you have an accent. Well, this, this statement, this evaluation statement really is quite loaded statement. First of all, you know, there's so much being said in this, you know, statement. So the, the person who utters this statement, you know, does not, even if, yeah, uh, the person who utters this statement you know, does not even realize the far-reaching consequences of this utterance and how unconscious mind mm, of the listener processes that information and how this person, um, you know, the speaker, is, in, is processing that information. So if I say to someone who speaks differently than I do, yeah. oh, you have an accent, yeah. I'm kind of saying you're not like me, exactly. you're not. You are not like me, you are somebody else. The interesting thing is, again, first of all, how could human beings simply overlook the natural fact that everybody has an accent? So now what goes, what's going on in social mind when somebody utters this utterance or this sentence? And the listener's perspective, what goes on. So yes, you know, the informally, maybe it has no consequence, but you know, the, it has serious implications or see profound you know, impact 
on the listener, which can hardly be underestimating, uh, underestimated. Mm. Let me ask you, is that where the stereotypes come from? Because you have this idea that the Southerners who talk with a drawl and slow are somehow, they're stupid because they talk like that. Or that the the British accent, they're intelligent because of the way they speak. Is that... Where the stereotypes That's where come the stereotype from? comes from. These are these stereotypes are actually based on the you know, deep-rooted social biases, social group biases that we have. And it makes the, me think about race relations. Race relationship. Too, and similar. Every, yeah. So somebody says, you know, you have an accent. That means okay, you are not the part of my group. Hmm? Secondly, you know, the you know, the you are not intelligent enough. Hmm? You know the. You can do something to control your accent, which is not a desirable accent, and you are not doing that one. And if you are not doing that one, your credibility, professional credibility, is you know, the, you know, at stake. So these are series of you know, the you know, you know, inferences are unleashed by this simple-minded you know, the, uh, you know, the statement. So one is that your know, social mind looks at it, well, look, you have already profiled me if you are giving me this statement. What you are underlyingly you are telling me is that I'm not the part of my, your group. Secondly, you are telling me that I'm not, you know, that your group is better than mine. There's a value judgment in that one. And thirdly, well, I'm subordinate to you. So the people, you know, who experience or the listener who, you know, face these types of, you know, the, you know utterances, they go through a lot of trauma because there's a pain. The pain is once you keep the judgment that you are not or the brain, social brain processes that you are not the part of my group, that is an indicator of one, you are lower than me, subordinate group, and secondly, that, you know, you are really, you know, the, uh, you are, uh, uh, so, so you are not the part of my group, that's one thing, and the secondly, that you are really, you know, the, mm, inferior, mm, or? inferior to me, and, you know, the, and you don't have credibility, and, uh, you know, it's so, oh. Interesting. So all from that one phrase, you have an accent. You, you have an accent and you know, various, you know, a chain of inferences you have. Yeah. Yes, what I wanted to say was actually, then the thing is, next come to that one. The moment you have been you know, profiled and the social mind of the listener has processed unconsciously this meaning that I'm not the part of my your group, which you think you are dominant group, superior group, I'm not the part of that one. So the thing is, very clear implication in the mind of the listener is, well, I am being excluded, social exclusion. So you are socially you are excluded, you are subjected to linguistic abuses, in a way, you know, the linguistic bullying, and in a way, ex- exclusion is so powerful that it has again, you know, it takes toll, you know, toll on, you know, on listeners. Sure. Toll in the sense mental torture. You are facing this type of expressions at day to day, every day to day, and you cannot. You are practically living in fear. Anywhere you open up your mouth, and you know, you worry about somebody might say, "Oh, you got 
and accept, which can be ego-cracking, which can destroy your credibility and shatter yourself immediately. So as a result of that one, you know, the people go through a lot of trauma, which goes totally unacknowledged, because people, you know, listener, no matter how tortured, you know, the, how you know, painful it is, they find some ways to overcome this type of pain. But in some cases, you know, the, you know, one cannot. The pain of social exclusion is in the same region of the brain where you have the physical pain. So it's a basically this type, these types of statement, the end result is your physical and intense social pain. So social exclusion social is exclusion. Uh, in the same area of the brain as physical pain. Exactly. Huh, the effect of social exclusion, which is the pain, is exactly in the same region of the brain where you got yes. the physical pain. Interesting research. Thank you. My guest has been Syracuse University linguistics professor Tej Bhatia. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.